Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa, and I have a new guest with me here today. Today, I've got John Rogers on. Say hi, John. Hello, everybody. Hey, John. So did you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Like, how did you hear about the podcast and, you know, what draws you to movie, uh, the love of film, I guess? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, what drew me to the podcast is that uh, you and several of other of my friends have been a part of that, and I've listened to a few and thought, ooh, that would that would be a really cool thing because I'm a lover of movies myself. And um, the movie I've chosen is To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962, I believe. Is that right? That sounds right. Let me double check my notes here. Yep, 1962. And uh, directed by Robert Mulligan as a classic. I and another reason I pick it is because I am a high school English teacher, and this is one of the novels that my students have to read every year. And I always, I always warn them, I don't try to watch the movie to substitute for the novel because there are several wonderful sequences in the novel that did not make it to the movie, so they have to read the book. But then we do a, a, a brief film study of it after we've done the book study as well. That's pretty awesome. So kind of diving into some of our questions here. Uh, first of all, I want to say so glad to have you on the podcast just from knowing you outside of it. Uh, I think that you uh, have a gift for storytelling. And so I would and, and I know you you ha uh, do some theater, local theater as well, right? That is correct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I just thought you'd be somebody that would be really great for this. And, uh, and I love that you picked this movie. Uh, when did you first see this movie? Was it in theaters or what format did you see it in? I probably saw it the first or at least some of it the first time when it was uh, first on the network. I believe it was an NBC Saturday at night movie in the later 60s. Uh, I was nine or 10 years old. I don't remember seeing the whole movie then, but I do remember Mayella's outburst in the courtroom. And then a few years later, um, in our church youth group, you know how they always call them youth groups, and they always called us our young people. Well, uh, one of our young people at the church I grew up in, father worked at the Universal Distribution Center in Dallas, and he would get films for us to uh, show at uh, after church parties, which we called fellowships on Sunday nights. And that the first time I remember seeing it all the way through was at one of these movies, uh, after church movies. And it was on a 16 millimeter, uh, film. Oh, wow. So this was before beta even, this was probably 1972, 73, right in there. Wow. Yeah. For me, I, I want to say the first time I saw this and I give this answer a lot on classics like this, I think it was probably in a film class in college. <laughs> and, 
much like some of the other movies I saw during that time. Although you see a lot of great movies back to back, I don't feel like I necessarily had the appreciation that I should have when I saw it. Um, it's better to do something, you know, in a format like this where it's sort of one on one and I have time to sit there and really like digest the movie and do my own research. So I really enjoyed watching it. Um, rewatching it, I just felt like I saw it with fresh eyes. So. I took one of those film classes, too, back in the 70s. It would be great to go back again with the movies that have been done in the last 40 years. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in our class, we saw things like Catch-22, The Godfather. Yeah. Uh, we might have seen this one. I, I don't remember one way or another. Uh, but it was called Film and Literature, and we had to, yeah, we had to read the book, and then we got to see the film. Right. Yeah. They all kind of blur together sometimes. <laughs> yes, they <laughs> So do. it's like you really enjoy it, but also you kind of wish you could go back and like revisit them. So that's that's what's fun about this. Um, so before we continue, I'm going to give a really quick, quick synopsis of the film. It's very short, but uh, here we go. To Kill a Mockingbird, 1962. Atticus Finch, a lawyer in the Depression era South, defends a black man against an undeserved rape charge and his children against prejudice. I really liked that. It's very succinct. <laughs> Just Indeed. kind of a quick summary. Um, and then usually at this part, uh, you know, obviously we're going to dive in. It's more complex than that. Uh, but we do a couple of quick facts. So I'm going to throw a couple out there. And if you want to chime in or sure. if you have a couple of facts yourself. Yeah. Uh, one that I really liked was that Gregory Peck's summation speech, which runs for six minutes and 30 seconds, was nailed in a single take. I've read that too. I yeah. I wonder about the veracity of that because mm -hmm. I, I just rewatched the film today again myself to prepare for this. And there are a couple of places where there are close-ups, reaction shots inserted, which would be good, uh, what do you call them, edit points. So I, I wonder if that's true or not. Yeah, and, it, could be, it could be like a rumor, a, a it, very exciting rumor, but it could yeah, be. Yeah, but it can be done. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that I do a little bit of theater. I had the immense pleasure and honor of playing Atticus Finch in a stage version uh, in 2016. And yeah, he got it in one take. I had to do it 15 times in a row. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times I'd have to do it. So I think that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, as yeah. an actor, I've gotten to the age where it's easier for me to learn the longer speeches than it is the conversational stuff. But oh, gotcha. Uh, but uh, watching him definitely helped me prepare for the role because there's no way I could do what Gregory Peck did. And my director told me, don't even try, uh, find my own Atticus. And uh, it seemed to work out pretty well for us. That's awesome. I would have loved to have seen that. I still need to make it out to one of your plays. I get your invites and something always comes up, but I'm, I'm going to be there. Don't worry. I'm coming. That's okay. Um, <laughs> so Brock, uh, Peters, uh, who plays Tom Robinson in the movie, started crying while he was filming his testifying scenes without rehearsing it this way. And so Gregory Peck, who plays Atticus Fitch, as you mentioned, in Finch, I'm sorry, uh, said that he had to like look past him instead of looking him in the eye to avoid getting choked up himself. I totally get that. I, I'm a big crybaby uh, myself, and sometimes I have played roles where I supposed to cry and sometimes not and and i'm again i wear my own emotions very close to the the skin and uh, i totally get that about not being able to look him in the eye uh, there are a few actors on again stage acting and film acting is like oranges and apples but uh, 
many times uh, I find myself having trouble looking another actor directly in the eye and maintaining my part of the character. Yeah, I I just felt that uh, Brock Peters' performance in that scene, it's so intense, like, you know, even now watching it. um, So I could totally understand being a little overwhelmed in that moment, especially if you're physically there. It just seems like that there's a a lot of, you know, uh, emotion, but also just social context. And we'll we'll probably get into all that. It was just, it was moving. Oh, sure. Um, Another uh, quick fact that I had was uh, that the piano in Elmer Bernstein's score was played by John Williams. Yes, I, I didn't know that till very recently myself. That's pretty crazy. That's exciting. I love the way when you do these, uh, when you kind of research movies, and of course it makes sense, but there's just so many connections and it's just fun to make those. So I just thought that was a cool And that was just a year or two before he started composing for television. He did the original Lost in Space TV show theme. Yes, I saw that the other day. I can't remember was, what I was looking up, but I, I saw that as a fact. I think I was just looking at like all the scores he did on like Spotify. I was putting together a playlist for uh, my friend that was um, leaving for Japan for a year. So, uh, you know, she likes John Williams because everyone does. And so when I was looking, I saw that and I was like, what? That's such a cool connection. I didn't know he started with TV. There were a lot of TV connections in this film. We'll probably get into that a little bit more. But a lot of the actors, other than Gregory Peck, were mostly television and stage veterans. Yeah, I noticed that while researching it. You're absolutely right. Well, as we're kind of diving into this, I think first we should talk a little bit about Robert Mulligan himself. I had written down that he directed about 34 films. Um, I wasn't as uh, familiar with a lot of his other work, but I thought maybe you could speak to that. Uh, Sure. Uh, He did a lot of live TV back in the 50s, the golden age of television, and Mm -hmm. that background kind of uh, informs how he went about this. You see a lot of uh, uh, medium shots. This this Mm -hmm. movie plays very well on television because it's framed almost as though it were being shot for television. Medium shots, two two actors in the the scene at the same time, big close-ups, again, which is very television-like. Did a lot of live Mm -hmm. TV, which means he also had to work very economically, too. Uh, Some of his more noteworthy films, just before he did To Kill a Mockingbird, he did a film that I saw, guess what, at one of these church fellowships called The Spiral mm-hmm. Road, which starred Rock Hudson. And oh. Rock Hudson was in the running to play Atticus Finch. Because, oh, wow. yes, Mulligan went from Spiral Road to uh, uh, Mockingbird. Uh, Up the Down Staircase with Sandy Dennis, uh, just a year or two after that. It's about a very young teacher starting out on uh, her first teaching job. And those of us who are teachers, we like those kind of movies. It was sort of like 20 years before Dead Poet Society and Stand to Deliver, uh, along about the mm-hmm. same time as To Serve with Love, you know, sort of the required teacher movies that we all seem to like. Um, <laughs> the Summer of 42, uh, which came out when I was in high school, uh, which I enjoyed very much because I was the same age as the protagonist at, at that time. as a coming-of-age story during World War II same time next year, which is a play I always wanted to do, but never got to it. Uh, that had Ellen Bernstein and Alan Alda in it. And it's about this uh, couple who are married to other people, but they meet every year to spend some 
time together. And uh, it's a wonderful play that covers 20 years of or so of these people's lives. A lovely little story. I always wanted to do that play myself, but I've kind of aged out of that role. I could play the older scenes now. I couldn't play the younger scenes anymore. But there's a lovely, lovely mm-hmm. little uh, movie that was based on a play. And he did several other things as well, but those are the ones that uh, I know a little something about. Oh, very cool. Well, um, this movie was adapted from a f- novel, obviously, by Harper Lee. And I think this was the only the only book she's ever written, Not right? quite. Uh, just a couple of years ago, you might remember on the news that uh, at long last, another Harper Lee novel was coming out. It turned. It was called oh, Go yeah. Set a Watchman, and it turns out it was an earlier draft of what became To Kill a Mockingbird. It had the adult scout going back to uh, her hometown in the 50s uh, as desegregation is getting started. And some of the flashback scenes in that novel are what became To Kill a Mockingbird. She's apparently submitted it to uh, the publishers and uh, – like with a lot of first-time authors, they wanted her to do some edits, and they really liked the scenes with the, the children. And so she went back and made this story that we've come to love. That's an important thing about this, and if you realize it, uh, that the book's written this way, it really helps on watching the film, is it is told through the eyes of the children. There's, there's not a That's scene of yeah. well, Scout, or the adult Scout, Gene Louise, is the narrator, and Kim Stanley does that voice. But uh, there's never a scene where Scout or Jim, her brother, are not in the scene uh, somewhere. And, and the mm-hmm. whole story is told through the, the children's eye. And uh, which is kind of funny because when we did the play, there's a line that Scout has that's not in the movie. Uh, but uh, Scout asked her father what rape is. Uh, but I do remember after seeing this movie asking my parents, what is rape? And they kind of hemmed and haw, uh, him and hawed, him and hawed around trying to explain that to me at uh, nine or 10 or however <laughs> old sure. I was at the time. Uh, but yes, the movie is, uh, this book is, Jean Louise is the narrator and that is the way the movie is supposed to be seen as well. Mm, that makes total sense. And you don't really see a lot of films tackle such a big subject that way. Um, I think that's a really big credit to this movie that it has these very serious uh, themes and social commentary. And I think having that perspective from a child kind of helps, I don't know if soften the blows the right word, but it definitely frames it in you know more simplistic terms and makes it like a little bit easier to digest when there's such such dark things happen. Yes, in and, uh, and in the, the N word gets used sparingly in the movie. It gets used a little more freely in the novel, and um, uh, and I always had to explain to my my students that, uh, like Huckleberry Finn, this is not a racist novel, not a racist story. It is a story about racism, which is a whole different thing. And uh, well, it's not a whole different, it's a related thing, but a different. Uh, in fact, Atticus has that great line, you never understand another person until you look at things from his point of view. Uh, it's looking at racism through the point of view of children who didn't really know racism. That's something that is that is taught and or is picked up on, and they were fortunate enough to live in a household where Atticus seemed to respect everyone, 
the mother figure for Jim and Scout is their household servant, who is an African-American. And uh, you don't see her treated uh, as a servant. You see her treated almost as a, uh, there is still the employer-employee relationship, but you don't see her being talked down to. And when Atticus visits the Robinson household about halfway through the movie, he's very respectful. He takes off his hat before he goes into their house and he shakes hands with Tom's father, which was in those Jim Crow times for a white man to offer to shake a a black man's hand. That was a Jim Crow law. A black man could not hold his hand out to shake a white man's hand. The white hat man, the white man had to offer his hand first. And uh, those those little subtle details are, are dealt with in this movie but it's never preachy about it right it's just showing you what's happening it's the context of that exactly right yeah and i do agree i know that that's kind of a controversial stance sometimes you know you hear about books being banned that that have like the n-word in it and for me i think that uh as we get, um, you know, not to say that racism is going away by any means, but I do think that that word in particular, some people will say like, oh, it's just a word. You know, why can't I say that? Why is it such a big deal? Um, I think the further we get away from something like that, we don't have that context of how a word can be so powerful, so destructive, so, so ugly. And I think in movies like that or books like that where you hear it over and over. I mean, it just, it really is clear why it's not a good word and what the weight that it carries. Um, So I think by taking that out of the novel or not having it in there at all, um, you lose some of that impact. I mean, it's, that's the honest truth. That was what was happening at that time. And, and things like what you're mentioning about um, subtle things like him offering his hand and, and the Jim Crow laws. I don't think that everybody necessarily recalls those facts today. And so they may even miss something that subtle. So I think it's important to have something like this, a snapshot in time giving you, you know, that context. Um, Indeed. And in, uh, the courtroom scene, we see the African-Americans having that nobody, you, we don't see anybody forcing them to go up and sit in the balcony. They just know to go there. Yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. I mean, that scene is really powerful because of that segregation. I mean, it's like, you know, it's he's on trial and yet nobody representing uh, Tim Robinson is in the jury. They're not even in the audience. They're having to watch it from above. Like that's just a very powerful visual and, you know, just just shocking by today's standards Indeed. for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Atticus, about Gregory Peck. Um, you know, uh, he, I've heard that he's quoted as saying of all his movies that To Kill a Mockingbird is his favorite. Um, I know he was a pretty big uh, activist and, you know, that he marched with Martin Luther King, I read. Which I was surprised to learn that. And that, uh, you know, he's known for movies like How the West Was Won, Roman Holiday, and of course, The Omen. Another favorite of him, which was a, a favorite movie of my mother's, was The Yearling, where he played this uh, farmer. Uh, his son adopts this baby deer uh, as a pet. And I think I've seen that. Probably have. Uh, uh, there was a recent remake. Uh, well, I say recent, within the last 20 years, but the original version, uh, Gregory Peck was the father. One of his younger roles, and... Uh, once again, playing 
more or less ideal dad, father type role. Uh, something that was pointed out uh, back to Mockingbird, something that was pointed out uh, by the uh, director, I watched it with the commentary on recently, and uh, the look that, again, nonverbal acting, the look that Peck has on his face when uh, Tom Robinson admits he felt sorry for Mayella, and that's what essentially convicted him was uh, uh, a black man admitting that uh, he felt sorry for a white woman and the way the uh, prosecutor turned that around and the look on Gregory Peck's face was you could tell right then he knew he had he had just lost the case and uh, again uh, of course he had that wonderful majestic voice but still he could do that nonverbal acting as well that really sold the character yeah, and and I think what's uh, that scene is sort of like I think in the context of the time, it's pretty obvious why that would get him convicted. But I guess from my understanding, uh, under a modern lens, it's the fact that Tim Robinson stepped out of line by feeling sorry. Yes, for exactly. Woman, right? Again, it's kind of that Jim yeah. Crow thing. Uh, uh, a, a black man could not say good afternoon to a white woman on the street if she was unescorted. There was all kind of things like that. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was almost as though he were breaking a Jim Crow law. Uh, it was not his place to feel sorry for a white woman. Yeah, I know. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that the character Atticus, I, I, I really liked uh, the way that Gregory Peck played him because he was like very sympathetic and kind, but still, you know, very firm. And I liked how um, the way throughout the movie, I feel like in the beginning, they touch on a lot the fact that the depression is going on and the way that people are viewing him and his position because he's not as bad off as some of the other characters, but the way that he's sort of trying to soften that and explain that to his kids. I don't know. I just, I, I really liked the character. I liked the way. Oh, there's a beautiful scene near the him. beginning, right after what you're talking about, where he's, uh, it's bedtime and scout would read to him at bedtime and they finished their little reading exercise and he's tucking her in and she asked to see his watch, his pocket watch. And the pocket watch had been a gift from her mother, uh, and uh, again, nonverbal acting right after that, he goes out to sit on the front porch swing. It's a warm night. The windows are open. And we hear Scout and Jim talking about their mother who had died when uh, Scout was uh, two. And she didn't have a clear memory of her mother. And the look of Gregory Peck just sitting on that swing with his head down, his chin in his hand, you know he's thinking about his beloved wife. and. Uh, but he doesn't have to say a word. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I really like that scene a lot. It was, uh, it was pretty moving and very subtle. Just, you know, they're, they're, they're in the frame, but they're not, he's just hearing them. And yeah, I liked that part. Definitely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, hopefully I say this correctly. Mary Batum. Is that how you say? Mary Batum. Okay. Scout. Uh, apparently before this, she had no acting experience prior to getting the role. And then she ends up getting nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> and, yeah, how amazing is that? <laughs> uh, the the only other thing that I saw that she was uh, kind of known for was she did an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Bewitching Pool. 
That was the very last episode of The Twilight Zone. Oh, really? So yes. jog my memory. What I, I love The Twilight Zone, but I, I can't say that I remember them by title. Wh- which one was that? Uh, she and her brother, and she has a name that's very similar to Scout. Uh, I can't remember, recall Sport. right off the top of my head what it was. It was Sport. Sport, thank yeah. you. Yeah, and uh, their parents are fighting, and their parents are very well-to-do. They have a pool, uh, mm-hmm. the family does. And she and her brother, to get away from listening to their parents bicker, dive into this pool. Well, actually, uh, a little boy appears in the pool and tells them to follow him. And he dives back down to the bottom of the pool. So they follow him. And when they come up, they're at this uh, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, idyllic idyllic, uh, mountain uh, where there's a lady there that takes care of a lot of children like them. And they have to make the decision if they want to go back to their mom and dad who are obviously about to split up or stay here at this sort of uh, land of lost boys, almost like Peter Pan plays. Uh, And uh, so that's what that one was about. And there's another little bit of trivia about that episode. Uh, Mary had gotten a little bit older and uh, they were essentially playing off of the success of Mockingbird. Uh, mm-hmm. And her voice had changed a little bit, and they got June Foray to dub in her dialogue. June Foray, uh, voice actors know, was Rocky the Squirrel, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Rocky the Squirrel, uh, was Granny in the Looney Tunes with Tweety Bird. And oh, wow. yeah, and so that's not Mary Badham's voice you're hearing in that. That's uh, June Foray. I'm not 100% sure why the producers. But since the whole thing was filmed outdoors, you know, the practice was to redub the uh, dialogue in later in a controlled studio so they could uh, clean out any cars passing by or planes flying over. And uh, for some reason, June Foray did that work. So, uh, but yeah, that was uh, the very last episode of The Twilight Zone. And uh, uh, Mary Badham is and I are friends on Facebook. Nice. <laughs> and uh, when when I we were doing our Mockingbird a few years ago, I, I uh, made a couple of uh, uh, communications with her, and she was very kind to answer and uh, was very encouraging to our scout, uh, Piper Cunningham, the young lady who plays scout in our uh, production. And uh, she, like our director, told us, don't try to copy the movie. We're not the movie. We're this play. And she said the same thing. Find your own scout, Piper. Uh, and uh, Piper did, she did a, a, a lovely job. But Mary was, was very kind in, in responding to a, a couple of posts I made on her page. So, yeah, that's awesome. I Yeah, I heard that she kind of retired. I know she went – I was watching a clip of her going to the 50th anniversary of the mm-hmm. movie. Yes. And she and Gregory Peck stayed close the rest of his life. Uh, 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 she – uh, kind of took him as a father figure, and and uh, they were ma- they maintained that uh, relationship through the rest of his life. That's really and cool. I, yeah, I think she called him Atticus all all their time together. Yeah, earlier before we started recording, I sent you a little clip of a movie, and you actually use it in your class. Uh, it's called To Kill a Mockingbird, Part One: Crash Course in Literature. Crash Course and in Literature. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's from a channel called Crash Course. And I really enjoyed that breakdown. I think, 
you know, I, I the story's pretty straightforward, but I think it, it really did a good job of sort of breaking down the subtleties in the movie and the way uh, Scout's character, you know, of course, is sort of a stand-in for Harper Lee, but um, the way she sort of navigates uh, all the different prejudice that exists in her childhood uh, when it comes to, like, gender roles, when she has to, you know, go from wearing the pants to a dress, right? Um, the way that she acts at school, and just how she's sort of holding on to, like, she knows she's not a little boy, but she's sort of holding on to that. Um, and not wanting to transition into womanhood because she knows what she's going to end up giving up. And then she's got this great dad that um, really welcomes and accepts her. And that issue keeps coming up in really subtle ways. Like you mentioned that scene with the, uh, with the watch. Uh, she, he says, I'm going to give that to my son. And she says, well, what are you going to give me? Yes. And he kind of smiles because he does. she doesn't have that context of, you know, normally the 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 father wouldn't be giving her anything, right? But she doesn't know that uh, because she doesn't know ab- about all these different sort of gender ideas yet. Um, and so he just tells her, you know, your mother has a pearl necklace, and I'm going to give you that. But like, I like how he quickly recovers and how they sort of acknowledge that, and then also how throughout the movie like you mentioned earlier, the female uh, characters that are sort of like a mother figure in her life, uh, their neighbor, and then uh, the servant, um, the way that they sort of like guide her. And also you get the feeling, um, and I didn't notice this watching the movie, but they say like, you know, had those two women been on the jury, um, they probably would not have convicted uh, Tom Robinson. So that would have had a really big impact on that case. And, I think that's a really subtle way of saying, you know, why why aren't women there? Why aren't they in the uh, jury? Why aren't they in the courtroom? And this was before uh, women were um, allowed to be on juries. You know, the, yeah, the movie oh, wow. set in '32. Uh, women only got to vote in 1920, so that's like 12 mm-hmm. years before. And uh, so, yeah, uh, like the black people, the African Americans, uh, women were not fully equal. I hope my dog back barking in the background is not ruining this. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can hear it, but it's okay. I, I okay. know that can uh, be. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think the reason there were no women on the jury is because women were not yet allowed to be on juries. Uh, I'd have to look that up to make sure my history's right there. But uh, And again, that's not all that long ago. That's during my parents' childhood. And, uh, Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we we think of things that were before we were born as being ancient history. But when you look at the total timeline of things, uh, we're not that far away from Jim Crow and segregation. And uh, whenever Remember the Titans comes up in conversation among my students, I say, well, y'all know that as a movie. That's something that that I lived uh, in the late 60s, early 70s when they segregated the, the school district I worked uh, I grew up in and mm-hmm. but yeah wasn't all that long ago yeah it, it's funny how we think that it, like you said as time passes we kind of forget things and you know we see it as like oh this is preachy or oh this is you know harping on something that's already over but it's like you know there's a tendency to want to feel like we don't want to forget what happened and I think this movie is a great example it, it does a really good job of as we've mentioned a couple of times it does touch on all those things like you said without being so direct um, just kind of letting the audience see it through Scout's eyes like you mentioned and sort of make your own judgment but 
but it's all there. There's there's only one time. There's only one time when they really hit you with calling racism or segregation or any of it evil, and that's during during a Atticus summation speech when he says that you men would go along with that assumption, the evil assumption that all Negroes lie and that all Negroes are not to be trusted. Uh, and that's about the only time it gets, they really hit you directly with mm-hmm. it. Uh, the rest of it is, is implied in the, in the relationships uh, among the characters and the, the way the town is situated. And in that town, they did an, you know, changing topics here just a little bit, that town, they did an amazing job of capturing what a Southern town looked like, even though that movie was actually filmed on the back lot at Universal Studios. Yeah, I read that. And didn't they, uh, the the set designer won some kind of award because it, it's just so, I mean, it looks so real. I, I really thought that it was real, that they filmed on location. But I also saw some video where there's a couple goofs where you see like the mountains in the background. <laughs> and so that's right. kind of accusing yes. me, okay, they're not actually in Alabama, but... Yes, and that's that's true. And uh, um, but uh, they uh, Mulligan said that they went and scouted uh, Monroeville, Alabama, which is where Harper Lee grew up, and said very little of the old uh, houses and things are there. There were little pockets, but no way they could actually shoot on location. Uh, and the courthouse at Monroeville uh, was used as a model for the courthouse set. Uh, with the balcony for the segregation and uh, no air conditioning. Again, it's supposed to be 1932 or something. And, uh, and the real Monroeville courthouse is used as a set. The They have a To Kill a Mockingbird festival in that town every year. And the play that, again, I was uh, – uh, lucky enough to be a part of uh, is performed there with locals uh, every year as part of their uh, To Kill a Mockingbird Festival. And they staged a courtroom scene in the actual Monroeville courtroom. That's really cool. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yes. Love to go there and see that sometime. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, I think what we should do next, I, I have some notes about some of the other actors, but I feel like we can kind of get to them as we are discussing the plot. Do you want to kind of go through and mention some more of your favorite scenes? You can go chronologically or just pick out favorite scenes that you have either way. All right, let me talk a minute about a favorite scene that didn't make it to the final cut. Okay. Is uh, my favorite sequence of the book. Again, I teach literature and um, – the role of Mrs. DeBose, you only see her in one scene where she's yelling at, at, at Scout for saying, hey, Mrs. DuBose. And uh, Atticus distracts her by talking nice to her and talking about how pretty her flowers and stuff are. She actually had uh, that role was played by uh, 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 Ruth White who was actually much younger, and she went through a several-hour makeup process every day. Well, that was not the only scene she was going to be in. There's this wonderful sequence um, that got cut where Ms. DuBose berates the children for their daddy choosing to defend Tom Robinson and calls him an in-lover and stuff like that. And Jim gets very upset and destroys those flower bushes that are in front of her house. And as a punishment, Atticus sends him to read to her every day and uh, supposed to read for a, a certain amount of time. And he and Scout goes with him and they notice that every day the time is a little longer and they think they're being gypped. 
And uh, ultimately, Ms. DeBow says, well, this is the last day you'll have to come read for me. You won't have to come anymore after today. And the kids are so relieved. They think they're being paroled. And uh, Ms. DeBose dies. And it turns out that the reason, uh, the real reason Atticus had Jim go over to read to her is to distract her because she was uh, had cancer and the pain was so great that she had gotten addicted to morphine and she did not want it to die an addict. So every day when he came to read to her, read to her, uh, uh, she was weaning herself off the morphine. And that's why every day it was a little bit longer. And they filmed that sequence and it didn't make it to the final cut because it ultimately did not feel uh, fit into the main narrative of getting to the trial. It, it seemed it kind of bogged the thing down. And uh, Mulligan said he apologized to uh, Ruth White if uh, every time he saw her because it was, he said it was wonderful acting. It was a beautiful sequence. It just didn't fit into the final cut of the story. Uh, but Ruth White, uh, a wonderful character actress, and we only get to see her uh, briefly when she, uh, the first time we see Atticus practically when he comes home from work and uh, uh, she yells at the kids. And uh, I have looked everywhere. I've Googled. I've YouTubed everywhere to see if there's any of that footage remaining. I found a couple of stills of it, but uh, and Mulligan admitted on the uh, uh, commentary that uh, – they just didn't save things uh, back then the way they do now. It was on nitrate film, and there was no reason to save outtakes. And so that wonderful sequence uh, is only a kind of a legend now. Wow. Yeah, I, I I see how that fits directly into the themes in the book because, and I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later, but when we talk about Boo Radley and just how all these ideas about uh, pers- perspective, um, the way society sees something and the way it actually mm-hmm. is. So that would have really fit into the themes of the movie. But I do agree with you that I, I think that maybe it would have made it possibly a little bit too long or um, it's more of a straightforward narrative where we're focusing on right. the trial. You know, and, and we're still able to accomplish some of that perspective with um, the the Boo Radley aspect of it. But if you add in a third aspect, I, I could definitely see that. But so that that's in the book, right? Yes, it's in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, since I teach reading, that's my favorite segment of the book. And that's one of the things I warn my students about. If they try to watch the movie instead of reading the book, I make sure there are several test questions about that <laughs> sequence. Uh, the sequence where they have the Finch family Christmas. There's an aunt, uh, Atticus's sister, that's not in the movie at all. Uh, and there's uh, Again, the book has as rich as the movie is, the book has... Uh, as always happens, uh, wonderful scenes in it that that uh, could have been, but just weren't because it did. It's like a you know a, a book can take several hundred pages. Uh, you could make a To Kill a Mockingbird miniseries, perhaps, and, and get it all in. But uh, whether the book or the movie, you got to get to that trial. That is the heart of the story in either case. That's true. Yeah. Well, what's another scene that you kind of wanted to touch on? Oh, uh, favorite scene. Well, we'd already talked about the pocket watch. Oh, uh, Jim, uh, a lot of people talk about Scout. And there's a couple of scenes that kind of break the idea that 
that Scout is telling the story because she's either asleep or not there. Jim was mm-hmm. played by, um, help me out here, Philip Alford. And like Mary Badham, he didn't do too many things. Uh, one of his next movies, he played James Stewart's youngest son in Shenandoah, another favorite movie of mine, a Civil War movie. Uh, he did a fine job of playing uh, Jim, uh, there's the scene where they go out to Helen Robinson's house uh, about a third of the way in the movie and first time the children encounter uh, the bad guy. Uh, the drunk guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh man, what's his name? The Yule, Bob Yule, Robert <laughs> E. Lee Yule. And, That's right. and Scout's asleep during that part and Jim experiences that. And then when they get back home, this, again, another neat, I'm a sucker for dad-son scenes. I cry when Darth Vader takes off the mask, for instance. But uh, 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 they get back home, and Jim sits in the rocking chair on the front porch, and Atticus is carrying Scout. She's fast asleep. And Atticus just said, son, there's a lot of ugly things in this world, and I wish I could protect you from all of them, but I can't. And like, okay, you learned a lesson tonight, son, that. Uh, Life isn't just playing in the summer sunshine, rolling tires down the street and, and running around with your little friend, Dill. Um, it, you know, there's other things as too. And, and Jim's growing up. In the book, it makes a point, without coming out saying it, that he enters puberty during this time. He gets moodier and, and stuff. And he's a, the more, obviously, you know, the more serious of the two. He's a little bit older than Scout, of course. Yeah, and their yeah, friend. Their friend, right. Dill. Uh, Dill was played by um, uh, John Magna. He was one of several actors in this thing. They have a Star Trek con- uh, connection. I think that might be something we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, but the actual character was based on Harper Lee's childhood friend, Truman Capote, or Truman Capote. I've heard his name pronounced different ways, uh, who became a best-selling author himself. He wrote In Cold Blood, among many other things. Uh, he wrote a wonderful childhood story uh, that we actually use in my class uh, called A Christmas Memory. Um, and uh, But the, that character was based on him as a, as a, a small child. Uh, and, and you can see it because that kid, uh, Dill, uh, makes up stories about his father and, and things like that. He's just a, a natural storyteller. Uh, uh, I love. You know, he's almost in there for comic relief, but at the same time, uh, he's there for exposition purposes because he's not from Macomb, Alabama. He visits there, visits his aunt there during the summer, and Jim explains to him who Boo Radley is and this, that, and the other. So he's there for expositional purposes, but he's also there for comic relief as well. Yeah, he's a cute little goofy kid. <laughs> yes. You mentioned uh, the Star Trek connection, which you were telling me about when you were uh, watching the director's commentary. Um, And I didn't notice that. But then after you said that, I started kind of doing a little bit of digging. The -hmm. biggest connection that I saw was uh, the guy that played the sheriff, um, Mm -hmm. uh, his name is Frank Overton. And he was really popular from Bonanza, a movie, a show that my dad talks about a lot <laughs> right a lot of these actors in this were in westerns and the that's what i grew up on as a small child my dad loved westerns and rifleman laramie all of them and a lot of these actors were uh regulars and and those things uh, uh frank overton one of them and um 
oh, what's his name that played a, a Robert E. Lee? Oh, um, the Yule guy. Or- yeah, Bob Yule. Uh, um, let's see, James Anderson. Thank you. Yes, he was. He was a bad guy uh, on a lot of westerns. I remember him specifically from The Rifleman. He went up against Lucas McCain a lot. But uh, several of these actors uh, appeared in Star Trek, the original series, and at least one was in three different incarnations of of Star Trek. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead. Just run down my list here. John Magna, who played Dill, uh, Mm -hmm. was one of the children in the Star Trek, the original series episode, Miri, which featured, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kim Darby. Uh, as the young lady who's growing into womanhood. Uh, Frank Overton, we, you mentioned, played Heck Tate, the sheriff. Uh, he was in the Star Trek episode, This Side of Paradise. Okay. Brock Peters, who played Tom Robinson, uh, was uh, Captain Sisko's father on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I read that. That's so cool. And he was also Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek Four and Star, Star Trek Six. Uh, and he also did various voices on various uh, uh, video game versions of Star Trek. So, yeah. And he was in Soylent Green, too. Yeah. I felt like I was like, I knew I recognized him from somewhere. And he did stage work, too. I do remember. I didn't get to see this. I wish I had, because this is another play slash movie that has been a big part of my life the last few years. But he played uh, uh, Hope Colburn in a, a production in Irving, I think, back in the 90s of Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, yes, wow. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy has been a big part of my life last couple of years. And uh, I found that out uh, among that. Paul Fix. Paul Fix was in everything. He was a regular in the John Ford, um, John Wayne movies in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, mainly known as the marshal and the rifleman he played the judge but he was uh, he was in the second star trek pilot called where no man has gone before this is before they had dr mccoy and he played the ship's surgeon in that one episode and they wound up having to use that second pilot as an episode of the series because they were coming up uh with uh scheduling problems and they had to get an episode deliver an episode to be on there. So there's just one episode of Star Trek where you have a different ship surgeon, and that's Paul Fix. And again, he was in everything. Uh, William Wyndham, who played the prosecutor, Mr. Gilmer, was uh, Commodore Decker in the Doomsday Machine on the original Star Trek series. And he was also, his character, the father of Commander Will Decker in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Nice. There's yeah. a lot of connections. Uh, a couple of more. Um, the man who played Nathan Radley, uh, Boo's uh, older brother or father, they never explain what the relationship is in the movie, in the book, is his older brother. You see him briefly when he puts the cement in the hole in the hollow tree. But he was in uh, an episode of the original series, as it was one of the courtroom spectators, Noble Chiselle. Uh, was in the city on the edge of forever. So there's six actors for sure that have Star Trek connections. But these people, you saw these same faces all the time on episodic TV in the 60s. Uh, you'd see this uh, a guy that was uh, a bad guy on a, 
one of these Westerns be the bad guy on another one. And then six weeks later, he might be a different bad guy on the Rifleman or whatever. Uh, I, I do know that uh, uh, Bob Yule, the character, the actor who played him was, uh, was, that was his job. <laughs> he went from Western to Western, generally playing bad guys. And they say that in real life, you know, he plays such a vile character in this thing. They say in real life that once you got to know him, he was the sweetest guy ever. But he went to Mulligan and said, uh, I know this character. And he got so, you know, method acting was really big in those days. He got so deeply immersed in the Bob Yule character that he never would uh, associate with the other cast members and stuff kind of kept to himself. Uh, he and Brock Peters did not get along and it was partly just because he was building that character and did not want to uh, establish that camaraderie with the others because his character is separate. His character is uh, not tolerant of other people at all. And, and he, but they say once he shook that off that he was really a delightful person to be around just not while he was working yeah that happens that happens even now and you know they people have said that about uh um what's his name <laughs> uh daniel day lewis you know uh, also loses himself in characters and um can be difficult to be around and Tommy Lee Jones has that reputation as well. Mm -hmm. He does not suffer fools gladly. Will Smith had a, a tough time breaking through that exterior when they were making the Men in Black movies. But once they did, they became very, very, very close friends. Much like the movie itself. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, one scene that I wanted to talk about, I, I think it's so interesting that this story is written by a woman and, and then told from a woman's perspective because we're seeing it from Scout's perspective. And then there's that twist at the trial that, you know, as we've already talked about, um, Tom Robinson is being accused of rape. And to me, the twist is that, you know, it's a woman who is accusing him and she's actually the one lying. Um, and, you know, why would that happen? And I think, I think it's bold to have that in there that, you know, to have the, the, the victim uh, be the one that's not telling the truth. And then also under the lens of, you know, you still feel sorry for her mm -hmm. the same way that uh, Tim Ro Tom Robinson feels sorry for her because she truly is a victim. And I think there there's a little bit of an underlying theme in the whole movie that in a weird way, everyone's kind of a victim of what's going on because I feel like they mention a lot throughout the film. This is sort of a tangent. I'll come back. Okay. <laughs> but uh, throughout the film, you know, they mention how hot it is. It's like oppressively hot. And then it's the depression. And it just seems like that is really feeding into everyone's, you know, anger and um, into the situation, affecting the situation itself. And then on that same note, uh, what what's the girl's name? May Ella. The accuser. Uh, Leo. Okay. May Ella. She May Ella. Okay. Got it. Okay. So May Ella, you know, she has this abusive drunk father uh, that is very controlling. And instead of getting to like go to school or move on with her life, she's supposed to be 19 uh, in the movie or in the book. Mm -hmm. And she uh, is instead staying at home, raising all of his children, basically, um, and dealing with him. And so, of course, she's very lonely. And we find out throughout the trial that what actually happened was that Tom Robinson came over a lot because she asked him to 
Um, and she kind of got the wrong idea. Uh, I think in the movie and in the book, he's married, right? right. Like he's got his yeah. own family. He just felt bad that she would, you know, for, she's desperate for adult interaction that's not her father. And so she constantly has him come over and help with different things. And then one day she kind of comes on to him and even kisses him without asking him. Um, and he's it, that terrifies him. He know he knows what, what that is going to lead to right off the bat. Oh, yeah. If, yeah. I mean, at, at that time, as we said before, it was not even proper for uh, a black man to shake a white man's hand without the white man offering it for uh, him to, you know, uh, there were many cases where uh, uh, lynchings and things happened because uh, black men were accused of just looking at a white woman wrong. So, yeah, he, he knew what kind of problem. In fact, there was a, a near lynching in the, the film. That's right. The, the, Another favorite scene. We miss that one, uh, but uh, but yeah, she's a young girl. She's she's got you know again a yard full of uh, little brothers and sisters. But she's a young woman who, like you said, uh, adult interaction. She's got needs and desires that aren't being met. And Tom Robinson, bottom line, he is a very attractive man, broad shouldered, strong, uh, polite, uh, and. Uh, and the only man close to even close to her age that she ever sees. And so sure, she uh, gets a little uh, attracted by that. And uh, uh, in the summation speech, uh, Attica says, I have nothing but pity in my heart for the chief witness for the state, but my pity does not go so far as to let her put a man's life at stake. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, oh, where was I going to get to here? But uh, yeah, it's her. Yeah, he says she broke a time-honored code of our society. She hadn't broken any laws, but she broke this time-honored code. And uh, while uh, Atticus infers that he does not believe in that code, that is the community standard, and she broke it. So she's trying to hide her guilt. And she does it by accusing him of coming on her. You know, you find out the truth. Basically, uh, Tom Robinson, there's no way he could have done that because his uh, he's left-handed and his right hand – or no, I'm sorry. He's he's right-handed because his left hand is mangled, right? right? That, that, mm -hmm. that is correct. His left hand is mangled and the wounds that she uh, suffered, the forensics such as they were, uh, would have – the person who did that to her would have had to lead with his left hand. And we find out there is a person in the story. Let's not spoil this one for her, that is <laughs> proven to be left-handed. And uh, that's probably the culprit there in, in the beating of her. Right. And it, it also gives her a motive to lie because not only is she afraid of society, but she's afraid of her father. I mean, basically he saw what happens, tells her he's going to kill her and then almost does that. Yeah. So she is under tremendous pressure. So like in this story, they even touch a little bit on domestic violence. Like it, it really mm -hmm. is sort of a straightforward narrative that really touches on a lot of different things. You know, why do things happen? Um, they're not simple and they're not easy to break down. It's you've got to look at it from all sides and you've got to look at the evidence. Um, and, you know, Atticus brings that up a lot. You know, we can't think about social taboos or how things look. We've got to look at what happened. And so when he breaks that down, it's almost impossible to deny who is actually guilty here. 
And so it's, I, I just think that's a really great, a really great scene. And, and that's what sets up the ending too, is that uh, in the book, it states very clearly that the, uh, the townspeople pretty much did not believe the Yules, uh, but they didn't really raise a fuss about it because that's, again, is how things were. A black man is accused. He's assumed to be guilty. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the Yules, even though they're the lowest of the low, uh, uh they're white trash. Let's put it that way. Uh, they're still white, and uh, but they are outcasts from the community, as has been as we've already touched on before. And uh, so, um, yeah, uh, Bob, you have thought that his community uh, standing in the community was going to be raised, and it wasn't. And he was very bitter. And uh, Finch Atticus pretty much humiliated him and his daughter in front of the community, and that's why he held, held so much bitterness, which sets up the ending. Yeah, that's right. I think even though, like you said, they they vote that he's guilty, it's sort of only on principle. It's like they have they feel that they have to pick a side, uh, the jury, and th- that side has to be white, no matter what. But because he made such a compelling argument, it's obvious what actually happened to the community. So they're still going to ostracize Yule, like you said. Right. It's just too bad they couldn't get a change of venue. And Attica said that they had more than a reasonable chance of winning on an appeal, but the appeal never came. Right. Because uh, Tom Robinson escapes. um, And when he tries to run away, he is, he's shot, he's gunned down. Which, you know, sort of takes somewhat of a, um, a direct line to things that are happening today. Um, but like, you know. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. Yes. I, I kept thinking about that a lot. I mean, just all of it. Um, our, you know, Atticus talks a lot about our justice system and, and how it needs to be fair. And then he's really disappointed and doesn't know what to think when it isn't. And that's something, uh, you know, convictions of, of people of color, you know, that's still a huge issue today. I mean, it's just it's amazing how much of this movie, how much of the story is, is, you know, really still happening. I tell my students every year when we start to deal with Mockingbird, I said, there's some things on here that some of us aren't really going to want to talk about, but we have to deal with Same thing with the, uh, the Holocaust when the, the kids read Anne Frank or Night by Ellie Weissel. Uh, not things, you know, they're not Harry Potter stories. They're not fantasy. They're stuff that really, really happened and are real big issues and have to be dealt with. And if To Kill a Mockingbird or Driving Miss Daisy or The Diary of Anne Frank can get us pulled back that onion peel just a little bit so we can kind of get a a little bit of understanding how things were, maybe it'll give... uh, some of us, the enlightenment to not let things like this happen again. That's a nice hope anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complicated for sure. I mean, uh, to kind of what you're, uh, to expound upon what you're saying, when I was watching this movie, I thought for the time and, uh, that it was released in, it's extremely relevant um, and then as it goes on, part of why Harper Lee didn't release another book was sort of, you know, the, the, the story itself has always been a little bit controversial, right? Just in how it's received. Um, and I think part of that, like I read an article before we started recording that, you know, talked about it from, um, from 
you know, the, the whole story is told from kind of the white perspective, even though it is about racism towards, towards black people. And so that voice, uh, you know, black people don't have a big voice in this story. Now, if you look at the context of when it was released, when it was written, um, who is, you know, watching it and gaining a lot of enlightenment from it, you can see why that is. But I could also see under a modern lens, uh, sort of, you know, being troubled by that a little bit. But I think that kind of like what you're saying earlier, uh, it's good to have this perspective because like Atticus said, you have to look at it from everyone's shoes. And this particular story is from, from her perspective, from the author's perspective. She's kind of telling her truth, you know, what she went through. It's her, it's under her lens. Indeed. And that has been a major uh, critique of stories like this is, you know, here the noble white person comes to save the downtrodden black person. We, we see it in this. We see it somewhat in Daisy. We said there was a wonderful story called The Long Walk Home, where Whoopi Goldberg, I believe, played a, a black woman who had a long way to go to uh, go to her job working for this white woman. And there was the, uh, the bus boycott. And Sissy Spacek, I believe, played her employer. And... Uh, uh, they get to know each other when SpaceX's character would, would give Goldberg's character a ride home from work every day so that she wouldn't have to take this long walk. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of criticism that a lot of uh, stories like this are, you know, the uh, uh, while the black uh, characters are not shown in a negative light, we don't see them being as the, uh, the, uh, the saviors or the, uh, uh, the protagonists. Uh, and that's why Spike Lee's movies are so important and other black uh, directors as well. Uh, Peebles, uh, Mario Peebles, uh, and, and those directors, they, uh, they didn't have a voice back then or not a mainstream voice. So there was a black cinema, but it was for a black audience and uh, uh, very little crossover until after uh, – this time of the early 60s. Uh, this book came out a few years before uh, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's definitely a novel of its time, even though it's set in the 30s. It, it came out at a time when, when Dr. King uh, and the others were doing their work. And uh, again, maybe made some people aware of the larger problem. But at the same time, it does get criticized for being this noble white man uh, trying to save the life of, of the black man. What you're saying is totally true. But then also in another way, you do have to, like you said, take it in the context of the times. I mean, this was groundbreaking at the time. So we can still appreciate it for that. And also just that it is a good story. Um, we haven't really talked about Boo Radley a whole lot yet. But I kind of wanted to hear, I kind of wanted to talk about that with you because at first when you watch the movie or at first when you're looking at the story and it had been so long, like this is one of those movies that is so far in my rear view that I couldn't really remember what it was about even. Uh, so like when I watched it and and I remembered that character's name and, and I had a vague recollection, but I was like, how is this all going to connect together? Because I, I feel like at first when they introduce him, um, you know, the children, uh, 
kind of spying on him, trying to get a look at him, uh, finding things that he left in that tree. Like it's all very like whimsical and exciting, and you're, you're and scary. Yeah, and scary. Yeah, yeah, scary. He's the boogeyman. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, there's there's a story that uh, that uh, Bill's aunt gives that you know, he went berserk and and stabbed his father, his brother with a pair of scissors, and uh, well, he didn't go berserk. He got old or something and then jabbed at a family member with the scissors and for the, that reason uh you know they kept him locked up uh, in the book there's a little bit more explanation he uh, uh apparently wasn't always a recluse and went running around with some friends and and got into some kind of troubles and and his father uh wasn't going to let him get into any more trouble and that's why he uh, remained in, inside but whatever he was a mystery to the children scary fascinating and uh, and you never see him clearly till the very end of the film and something you and i kind of exchanged a couple of messages about this earlier he's kind of like the 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 beast and the sandlot (laughs) you know they talk about this dog that eats anything that comes into the yard and you never really see uh, this this animal for what he is till the very end when you see he's just He's just a dog and uh, that wanted companionship. And that is exactly what Boo is, or uh, Mr. Arthur, if you want to use his proper name. Uh, uh, person. And, and, you know, this theme of alienation and isolation just, just repeats. That was Mayella's problem. That's, that's Boo's problem, too. He's not allowed to interact with the, the rest of society. He wants to so bad, so long distance sort of he makes friends with these children by leaving them their little presents and helping them out uh when jim gets his pants caught in a fence when they were up to some little uh, antics uh he makes sure that jim is able to get his pants back and uh, uh and there's a wonderful scene in the book that didn't make it to the movie uh uh, uh miss uh, Maudie's house gets burned in, in the book and the neighbors are outside you know watching the, the firemen do their work and watching the house burn and uh, it's a cold night and uh, Scout realizes that somebody put a blanket over oh, there goes my dog again somebody put a blanket over her shoulders and we're to assume that Boo did that although we don't actually see him do that so he's this, this total mystery figure and uh, it was one of Robert Duvall's very first roles, too. If not, I think he'd done a couple of th- TV things before then, but his first motion picture role. Go ahead. Oh, I couldn't believe that was him. I was like, "Whoa!" When I when when like there's the reveal, and because uh, he doesn't like have any lines or anything, too, so it's no. like shocking. No, he doesn't. And uh, oh, but again, talk about non-verbal uh, acting. When Scout says, "Hey, Boo." You see his face go from being neutral to his eyes smile. And one side of his mouth turns up just a bit. And you see this tenderness. I'm going to choke up here and cry. Uh, You see this tenderness in his face that just with the movement of just a couple of muscles, very minutely. uh, And it's one of the most powerful pieces of acting you'll ever see. We'll talk about uh, Atticus being able to say that six minute long speech but uh, Duvall with just that simple facial expression 
I mean, it is so minute, so very, very small. But you see uh, this scary face or blank face turn into this tender, uh, compassionate, affectionate face with the most minute movements and just amazing. Yeah. And we should talk about, uh, you know, what happens in the last act, like why, why that scene is happening. Did you want to talk a little bit about the uh, Halloween Uh, night? Is uh, after the trial and things that kind of settled down and uh, they're having a a kind of pageant uh, at the, uh, the local school. It looks like it's one of those one room school houses. It looks, you know, or there's a couple of schoolyard scenes earlier on in the film. It looks like, all the kids of all the grades go to the same school. And uh, Scout has to wear this ham costume. It's made out of paper mache and chicken wire and whatever. And uh, some reason or another, she misplaces her dress, and they're having to walk home um, in the dark. And she's wearing this thing she can barely see out of. And somebody attacks them. Uh, knocks her down and she can't see anything that's going on and, and uh, we kind of get it through her point of view at that point we see just a hand we see jim fall down we see a hand reach down to grab him we see another hand grab that hand and we hear these strange sounds they're not really screams or screams or they're just more grunts and, and groans and then when scout finally disengages herself from the the ham costume she sees this hulking figure carrying a very limp Jim towards their house. And she runs home to, to find that the, and, uh, Jim's already in the bed and Attica's confronting out Scout, are you okay? And, and et cetera. And they get the doctor and they get, they call Sheriff Tate. Uh, and Sheriff Tate, and that guy is such a wonderful actor. He had so little to do. Uh, when, I was involved in our production when I went to the audition. That's that's one of the roles I put down on the application that I'd be glad to play. He's he, he's got some some really neat scenes. The uh, the the rabbit dog scene and uh, the scene here at the end, and uh, uh, but Sheriff Tate comes and reveals that Bob Yule is dead up uh, up the street with a knife stuck up under his ribs, and. There, uh, Sheriff Taze asks a scout, could she tell what happened? And she pretty much runs through what I just ran through. And then she realizes there's somebody standing behind the door. And she says, well, there he is. He can tell you who he is. And they open the door and we see Boo. And the wonderful, talk about facial expressions, the look on Mary Badham's face when she realizes that, that this is Boo Radley. And she's not afraid. Uh, she's not the boogeyman anymore. She just says, hey, Boo, and smiles at him. And that's when we see the, the facial expression on Boo change, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, Atticus is so uh, upset, he can't put two and two together. He thinks that uh, uh, Jim had killed Bob Yule in self-defense, but where's Jim going to get the knife? And uh, Sheriff... Uh, uh, kind of commits a little cover-up by saying that Bob Yule fell on his knife because he wants to protect Boo. Boo is a recluse. He's not uh, used to people uh, coming around and uh, 
doesn't have the social skills to deal with it. And Sheriff Tate wisely recommends that they just leave it alone and let everybody think that Bob Yule, who was a drunkard, just fell on his knife to uh, protect uh, protect uh, Arthur Radley and and to protect Jim. Uh, Atticus is very uh, uh, protective of his son and doesn't want there to be any cloud on his son's reputation as because we don't know for sure that Jim didn't do it, uh, although we do. Uh, and uh, uh, Sheriff Tate has that wonderful line, let the dead bury the dead this time, Mr. Tate. One man has died because of that man up the road, and, and now he's dead too, so let the dead bury the dead this time. Well, I was thinking too, Jim could be a suspect because he found a knife in the tree, right? And he had it in that little box of all the collection, all the stuff that like Boo Radley would leave in there. Yeah, there was a, looked like an old style Barlow pocket knife mm-hmm. or something, yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I think there's a really strong parallel about, you know, we talked a lot about outsiders. Well, um, in that town, because of uh, the past and because of, um, you know, segregation and, and racism, basically. Uh, it's like they, people in that town have an idea when a black man gets on the stand and literally no matter how much evidence you have and whatever you present, you can't sway them from what they already believe and think. And I think Boo Radley was the same, even if the evidence was going to point to someone else. Um, were, the town already made up their mind about that family, about him, about what he's like. And so he's not going to get a fair trial. Um and yeah, I think that I think they were trying to create a parallel with that, definitely. Yeah, that's good. That's a good observation. Um, so, oh, you you haven't mentioned the mockingbird line yet. Ah, uh, yes, and uh, oh, I was so disappointed when we did the play and the and the film. Atticus gets to explain why it's a sin to kill the mockingbird, but in the book and in the play is is Miss Maudie who actually does that. Uh, but uh, uh, it's, Jim really wants to have a gun of his own. And uh, uh, and this is before we know a little something about Atticus. The, the kids think of their dad as being over the hill. And, you know, he, he can't play touch football on the church team because he's too old and this, that, and the other. And uh, in the book, he, he always laughs at Austin that uh, he just got a late start. Uh, he is kind of an older father of, of children this young and um, uh, the Cunningham boy comes to have lunch with them and uh, the Cunninghams are uh, very poor and they have to eat squirrels and rabbits and that sort of thing and Jim finds out that this boy who's obviously a couple of years younger than he already has his own gun because he's helping to put food on the family table and uh, Atticus says he remembers when he got his first gun and that his father told him he could shoot all the blue jays and crows that he wanted, but that it was a sin to kill the mockingbird. And the children asked why. He said, well, the mockingbird does nothing. He doesn't get uh, nothing bad. He doesn't get into the corn cribs. He doesn't ruin crops. He just sings his heart out for us to enjoy. And uh, uh, a lot of the... uh, critiques of the story and, and the, and the, uh, the movie uh, draw the parallel that Tom Robinson is a mockingbird uh, who gets killed uh, 
because you know he wasn't doing anything but trying to help this person, uh, Mayella Yule, and and uh, the same thing with Boo Radley. Uh, in fact, Scout makes that point uh, that uh, if we told what really happened to Bob Yule that he was killed by uh, Boo Radley, she said it would be like killing a mockingbird, wouldn't it? It would be changing his whole dynamic. He didn't do anything but be nice to those kids with all the gifts and then ultimately the gift of, she called it, that he gave us our lives. And uh, so that's the uh, the symbolism there. And it's so neat uh, uh, when he makes that speech, uh, sometimes when uh, a line from the movie contains the movie's title, it's a big uh big moment and this is just a a simple father telling his children a story that just happened to contain those words Uh, no bells and whistles or anything Uh, it kind of brings the point home that uh, there's all kinds of complications in life and that life isn't always good that there are sins and killing a mockingbird is one of them Yeah, that's interesting that uh, Jim is, like you said, he wants he wants a gun, and his father is really reserved about that. Um, and and then there's even that scene with the dog, right? Uh, the mad dog that he has to put down, and and he really does not want to be the one to shoot the dog. What what do you make of that part? Why why was that in there? And what what is his reservation about shooting a gun? Well. Part of it, and again, you have to go to the book for uh, this, is that, uh, yeah, once Atticus, as a, as a young man, uh, probably about Jim's age, uh, got a gun, he was just really, really good at shooting. Uh, and uh, there's no evidence in the, in the book that he was a veteran of World War One or anything. In fact, uh, I think some places, uh, Scout says, my father never fought in any wars. But he was really, really good at it. And Miss Motti tells him uh, after, uh, this didn't appear in the, in the movie. Uh, in fact, Sheriff Tate has uh, pretty much the equivalent line uh, that uh, Atticus thought that uh, his ability gave him an unfair advantage. So he put the gun away and never uh, really did anything else with it. He didn't hunt or anything like that, that uh, he was just so good at it. It, it gave him an, an unfair advantage. And in this case, he shot the dog in order to uh, uh, maintain the safety of the neighborhood and especially his children. So, something that uh, uh, Mulligan uh, and the producer, Alan Pacula mentioned on the uh, commentary was that uh, they kept getting notes from the studio to create some sort of romantic angle between Atticus and Miss Maudie. And uh, thank God they didn't do that. You know, uh, it would, uh, and they uh, also got notes that, uh, you know, here's one of the most handsome men in Hollywood and you got him looking old with his almost uncombed hair and, and uh, uh, slightly punch in fact that's a that's a neat anecdote is harper lee uh, actually visited the set uh, early in the filming in fact it was the scene where atticus is walking by mrs dubose house and complimenting her flowers and she said the first time that uh, it said the first time that harper lee saw atticus that uh, gregory peck dressed as atticus uh who was the character was based on her father her real life father who was a lawyer uh says she teared up and said that uh, 
you have a pot belly just like my father. And to which uh, Peck replied, oh, no, dear, I don't. That's just good acting. <laughs> oh, let me say something about the uh, the screenwriter, uh, the great Texas playwright Horton Foote, who uh, wrote, uh, adapted the uh, the Harper Lee book into this film. Uh, you know Horton Foote perhaps from Tender Mercies. He wrote the script to that. He's, he's uh, written a lot of adaptations. Uh, he is from Texas. He's written many plays of his own. I had the immense pleasure of directing one of his scripts for Denton Community Theater a few years ago called Dividing the Estate. And it was just such a wonderful script to work with, just so rich. Tender Mercies, and maybe we'll do a show on that one sometimes as a favorite movie at time, which also features Robert Duvall, by the way. Um, uh, but he was able to take, again, this movie, that the, the book has many, many layers that had to be stripped away uh, to get to the, uh, the link to make a viewable movie. And he did uh, an amazing job of that. And I'm proud to say that like us, he is from tech or was, he's no longer with us, was from Texas. And, uh, and in fact, uh, he suggested a lot of the background actors, uh, like Frank Overton and, uh, some of the others were actors that, uh, Horton Foote knew from his work writing plays for New York and the Broadway theater, uh, and suggested to, uh, the producers and the director, some of these actors that the, the gentleman who played Walter Cunningham, uh, for instance, was a, a Horton Foot regular, so to speak. So he definitely had an influence on this movie that a lot of times doesn't get talked. We talk about how great the Harper Lee story is, but it was Horton Foot that adapted the story into such a, a, a wonderful script. And you got to give Robert Mulligan so much credit too, because, uh, uh, he said that, you know, if the movie were made nowadays, you'd have to have a, a cutaway scene, action scene of Tom Robinson, the escape scene and him being shot with slow motion bullets and, 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 and blood packs and things. And he's, he's, uh, uh, he said, that's not really part of this story. And uh, kept it uh, kept it simple. And again, his experience on TV definitely informs the way the movie looks, you know, with the, uh, close-ups, big close-ups or shots with just two or three actors on the frame at a time. Uh, the scene near the end, I, was, uh, I noticed when I was looking at it today, uh, when uh, Sheriff uh, Tate straightens Atticus out on who, on who killed Bob Yule, uh, you've got this big Hollywood star, Gregory Peck, and he's further away from the camera, and Sheriff Tate is in the foreground. In fact, Atticus pretty much has his back to the camera that during that time, you know, starting, he's trying to think about how he's going to be able to defend his son on a case of self-defense. And you've got this, this featured actor uh, in the foreground in place of the big Hollywood star. And also in the scene where um, uh, Sheriff Tate brings the news that uh, uh, Tom Robinson had been killed. You don't hear him say that. And you don't see Atticus from the front and the reaction shot that you get is just seeing Gregory Peck slump his shoulders and he walks very slowly back up to the house. And when he tells the children and Miss Maudie that Tom Robinson is dead, he can't look at them. And so we see the back of Gregory Peck's head 
instead of this big Hollywood star, very handsome face. Uh, and as much as uh, faces uh, tell a lot of the story, we've already talked about how these actors can really act with their, their facial expressions. And in that case, one of the most dramatic scenes in the thing, in the dramatic speeches, we really don't see his face. He's turned almost completely with his back to the camera, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, when you were talking about that scene where uh, Tom Robinson runs away, I think it has more impact when you don't see it and you just hear about it. Because I think as the audience, it's like you have no control over it. It's like it already happened. And it and it's shocking. And it's like in that moment, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like very quick. Um, and then, and then you're right. I think sometimes there's a lot in what you see in someone's face, but then there's also having that restraint to, to not show it, um, can also have really great dramatic impact. And I agree it does in that, in that moment too. Um, so that brings me to my last couple of questions here. Uh, what keeps you coming back to this movie? Why do you think you've uh, seen it so many times? Well, part of it is because of my job. (laughs) Uh, But I've always loved it. I first auditioned for a community theater role in this play back in the 80s and was not cast. I was in my 20s and and too young and and did not get any role. And it was at a theater where I was not a regular. Uh, Community theaters tend to be pretty insular sometimes. And then uh, about 10 years or so ago when I got uh, involved with Denton Community Theater. They did Mockingbird there, and I auditioned again and got cast this time. I was cast as the court clerk. My big part was swearing in the witnesses in the trial scene. And then year before last, uh, the Firehouse Theater in Farmer's Branch uh, had an uh, audition for it. And again, I, I did not have a connection with that theater at the time, but, you know, figure what have I got to lose? And uh, the young man that was directing it, Tyler Jeffrey Adams, uh, it was his first uh, play to direct for a community theater, although he's done, you know, college stuff, of course, very young man. And uh, uh, it was really neat working for him because this is a, a book that he had read in high school, as, as I'm sure you and, and, and you younger folks have done. And a story that he loved, and uh, uh, and third time was the charm. I got cast, and uh, uh, so a story I love. And it was so funny that year, a year before last, my students were like, "Are we having to read this book because you're in that play?" And I'm like, "No, this has been on the curriculum long before I came to even work here, and will remain on the curriculum long mm-hmm. after." Uh, and uh, but when we were doing our study of the summation speech. Uh, 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 we focused in on the persuasive techniques used in uh, in that summation speech. Uh, I suited up and wore my Atticus suit and performed the uh, summation speech for my students. Uh, yeah, I, I just love it. It was a bucket list role for me to play. Uh, and again, I, I use the film uh, as a film study after they've read the novel and uh, and we talk about the, the problems of adaptation, you know, what happened to the Mrs. DuBose scene, what happened to the uh, Christmas visit at Finch's Landing and, and all those things. And uh, 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 so they try to uh, examine uh, 
not only the book for its literary content, but for telling a story visually and, and those uh, things. And I, I just love it. I, I, I guess, you know, and whenever I, I use it in class, uh, this past year I had a, let's see, four pre-AP classes, so I got to watch it four times last fall and, uh, and watching it again today. Oh, an image I want to talk about real quick. Uh, I know we've been on here for a long time, but at the end, yeah, at the very end, when the scout walks Boo back over to his house, next time you look at it, notice the, uh, the, the a lot of scenes at night, and notice the shadows from the picket fence in front of the Radley house. Uh, most of the time, the, sh- the shadows fall away from the house, like they're lit by a street lamp that's slightly behind the fence a little bit. But when she walks Boo to his house that last time, and she says that line, you know, uh, about understanding what Boo was like, that standing on his front porch was enough. And she comes down off the porch and is walking back towards the uh, the Finch house, which is like next door. You know, got the old tree with the hole in it. Look at the look at the shadows from that fence. They go both ways, and it's almost like they make cage bars in front of the Radley house. And uh, it's like he's locking himself away. We'll never see him again. She says we never saw Boo anymore after that, but we thought about him often. And uh, a friend of mine pointed out that out to me. I, I don't want to claim the. Uh, genius of having spotted it but to me it's like a symbol that boo's going back in his cage and 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 uh, like that it's just a uh, kind of almost disturbing image but it also can maybe says that okay scout and jim you're growing up now you're you're on your own yeah i would say if you're a lover of cinema you need to go back and see some of the classics and like you mentioned it's funny when you say like i don't want to watch a black and white movie i've heard that so much throughout my life it's it's funny i i think i even went through a phase when i was younger where i had that that concept it's like my dad would suggest a movie i saw the date and that's all i could see and i was like oh i gotta watch this old why can't we watch new movies it's funny now to go back and watch those movies and and just it's like i don't know i i've I've tried to put this into words before but basically i feel like i missed out on so much when it comes to cinema that came before me because there's just so many movies out there it's like impossible to see all of them and it's just cool to go back and look at a moment in time to look at a classic and just see how how good movies were then and now you know it's like you miss out big time is my point if you only watch current film so you should go back and watch a classic um and for me like i guess what i would say to someone that hasn't seen this movie before is just that you'd be shocked by uh how relevant you know how much it can still resonate with people today um and then i would encourage them to see that clip that i watched that you also show your students um and and you know pick up a book read a book like uh i think it can only enhance your experience so i think it's just generally a, a good experience indeed it is it is if, if you only experience this story one of the ways uh, uh that it's been presented uh, you know pick your favorite read the book yeah, maybe you're not a movie person but uh, i i very much am so and uh uh, I love the movie, but I, I again I love both uh, for what they are and 
and what they share and what they don't share. Mm-hmm. Yep, a hundred percent agree. Well, John, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to discuss this movie with me. It was super fun. I feel like I got a lot out of it. It was really fun to research it. So I really appreciate that. Well, good, good. Uh, uh, speaking of Civil War, uh, uh, Paul Alford, uh, what is his name? You know, Philip Alford, who played Jim, his next big movie, I think I might have mentioned it at the beginning of the show, was Shenandoah as a Civil War drama, and Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, has the uh, the lead in that, and uh, uh, Alfred plays uh, Stewart's youngest son, and uh, I like, you know, as far as Civil War movies go, I like Shenandoah way better than Gone with the Wind. <laughs> that's, that's just me, but... Uh, uh, but it also deals with, again, some of these issues and the with the background of the Civil War. So there you go. Very cool. We'll have to talk about that next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good night. All right. Thanks for having me on. Of course. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I had such a good time recording with John Rogers on this episode. Um, I did want to take a quick moment to address something. Uh, I know this movie deals with some serious themes, and we try to address those as well as some of the controversy surrounding the author. To be honest with you, I was a little hesitant to tackle this episode because some of these things are so uncomfortable to talk about. But as John said, they are important. Uh, I know that uh, another concern I had was that you know, the movie deals with racism towards black people and neither John Rogers or I are black and we're kind of speaking on that in terms of talking about this movie. Um, you know, the format of this show is such that the guest picks their favorite movie and we talk about it. Um, so I don't want to misrepresent and say that we are experts or the end-all uh, voice to talk about uh, racism uh, during the Depression era, far from it. This is just a couple people sort of talking through and discussing these themes. Um, You know, I I was worried about how that might be received, but at the same time, you know, I know I can't be afraid of criticism to the point of avoiding subjects like this at all. Um, But I, I definitely have room to grow and learn. I would encourage you guys, if you have feedback on this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay or on Instagram under AYA and as Nancy AMI Lisa. Um, we also have a closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. Uh, if you want to send a request, I'll add you. It's, it's like a closed group, but just send it me a request and I'll, I'll approve you. Um, my only rule in that group is to keep it positive. We tr- we're all movie lovers in there and we try to build each other up. So I just, that's my only rule and it's pretty awesome. It's just a safe space to talk about movies. Um, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now we're at 20 reviews. Once I get 10 more, I will choose a name. So please leave one today. Uh, Thank you guys so much, and I look forward to hearing from you.